0: Jesus. His goal in coming, it was not simply to kind of squeeze us into heaven. It was to make for himself a new people, a people with zeal for a different kind of living. The gospel is the engine of the Christian life, but that new life, that transformed life, it matters so much to our Savior.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and we're continuing a message we began last time. It's called The Engine of Transformation. And, you know, Jonathan, I think we find in Scripture the principle that if we truly come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, change is going to happen. It's just the natural result of that relationship with Him. But how does understanding or a proper understanding of the gospel lead To that change?
0: Well, I think it is understanding something of the heart of Jesus in coming and listening to what he says to us about his salvation and listening to what the New Testament writers and indeed the Old Testament prophets teach us about the salvation of God. And it's a very kind of superficial and thin understanding of salvation that says, this is my ticket to heaven, uh, my escape from hell. And of course, salvation through Jesus Christ is those things. It is it is the, the means of entry into heaven and the escape from the judgment of God. But what Jesus is interested in doing is to create for himself a new kind of people, a new kind of society. And as we're, we're called into his kingdom, we're called to live as his people— and that's, that's his vision as our Savior and our
1: Lord. Well, we're going to look at this from the book of Titus. We're in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. So grab a Bible and join us there as we continue the message, The Engine of Transformation. Here is Jonathan.
0: The appearing of God's grace in Jesus trains us first To renounce ungodliness. Notice it here with me in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, again, playing devil's advocate, we might just push back a little bit and say, you know, that God's grace, it surely gives us license, actually, to say yes to those things. We're forgiven, so why not indulge? But no, the coming of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus, it trains us, says Paul, to say no, and here's why. The coming of Jesus to earth, the appearing of the grace of God in Jesus, it was a rescue mission and not a social visit. And we need to be clear about that. Jesus didn't come down from heaven just to hang out with us and to enjoy our company here on earth for a time. He came down from heaven because our ungodliness and our worldly passions, to use Paul's language here, had taken us to this place of terrible danger and of terrible loss, even destruction. He came down because we were on a sinking ship with no rescue boat in sight we were in a burning house with every escape barred he came down because we were perishing in our sin with no help in sight from time to time of course there will be these situations of imminent danger in a given place and the the authorities you know will issue evacuation orders there's a wildfire or a hurricane or a civil war and you need to get out now you need to move The emergency services might go door to door to warn people, to check that they actually heard the message. And for some, it will take the appearance of the rescuer at their door to realize that they were ever in any real danger. They didn't get the alert on their phone. They didn't turn on the evening news. But the arrival of the rescuer at their door, it tells them that they were in a place of danger of which they were not aware The arrival of God's rescuer, the appearing of his grace, it tells us of our acute spiritual danger. Jesus' arrival here on earth 2,000 years ago, it tells us that the patterns of life that we've adopted in sin, they are fatal and they are corrosive, and they are entirely destructive, even inviting the very judgment of God. And as we look into the heart of that saving work, and as we look at the cross itself, if we were ever inclined to think that sin isn't really a particular problem, if we were inclined to write off our misdemeanors as you know, minor foibles and insignificant slip-ups, the violence, the sheer violence and the agony of the cross tells us that something much more serious was going on. To put it simply, if we are not inclined to hate sin, to have a sense of revulsion at our own ungodliness, to recognize the wrongness of our worldly passions, to feel the depth of the offense toward God of our rebellion against Him, if we lack those sensitivities and awarenesses, And, of course, the sinful nature, it dulls our sensitivity towards sin and our awareness of sin. If those were dull, the appearance of God's grace in Jesus as he goes to the cross of Calvary on our behalf, as he endures that violence, as he endures that suffering, it teaches us. It educates us. It trains us to see the ugliness of sin and to recognize its seriousness. The cross teaches us to renounce, and that's a very strong word. It's an emphatic word, to forswear and to give up and to turn our back on worldly passions. In a sense, that is the negative side of the training of the grace of God in the cross of Christ. But there is, we might say, a very positive side to this training as well. The appearance of God's grace in Jesus teaches us to renounce ungodliness through the kindness of our Savior. When we recognize that the Lord Jesus gave himself to save us from the judgment that we so richly deserve, that he bore the cost and offers us forgiveness freely and without any deserving on our part, it changes our heart, doesn't it? It has to change our hearts. It, it makes us grateful. It must make us grateful. It makes us long, doesn't it, to honor him. It makes us desire to live our lives worthy of the grace we've been shown. In verse 14, Paul reminds us that Jesus gave himself at the cross to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. To redeem is to, to buy back. It's to repurchase. And the cost of buying us back, repurchasing us from our lawlessness, the cost of that was the very life of our Savior. He bought us with his very self. He purified us with his blood. It was costly, but here's why he did it. Here was his purpose. It was to have a people for his own possession, verse 14, who are zealous not for sin and worldly passions and self-indulgence but rather for good works returning to our old ways as we're inclined to do living in worldly rebellion we need to see that it denies the very purpose for which jesus gave his life at the cross of calvary And as we contemplate sin and then look back at the cross, we are covered in shame, are we not? That we would even toy with the idea of dishonoring the one who bought us at such cost and at such a price. And of course, it's right to say at this point that if you are a believer who is flirting with sin or walking in sin or immersed in sin and drowning in sin ungodliness worldly passions you need to consider again the appearing of the grace of god in jesus you need to learn again the lessons of grace you need to let the life of jesus and the cross of jesus move you and provoke you and drive you to renounce that sin in the power of the holy spirit I wonder if that is you this morning. I wonder if that is precisely your situation. I wonder if this reminder is precisely what you needed to hear. I suspect that for some, maybe even many, it is. Will you look again to the cross of Christ? Would you learn again the lessons of grace? Would you turn? Would you say no once more to ungodliness? and to worldly passions. The appearing of the grace of God in Jesus, it trains us to renounce ungodliness, and next it trains us to live in godliness. Verse 12, notice it again, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. How does God's grace give us this positive training now in godly living? On one level, it comes through the example, I think, of the life of Jesus. We all learn by example, of course we do. We need to see something done and done well to know how to then do it ourselves. Most of us learn our work, our professional skills through some kind of apprenticeship. It, it's fine to learn a trade or a skill in a, in a classroom with textbooks and illustrations and PowerPoints and all the rest. It's fine to study medicine or law in university, but until you get out onto the job site or into the operating room or into the courtroom, until you see the expert at work modeling excellence, you cannot picture it or internalize the principles. Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God and fell into sin, every human life has been compromised, marred by the fall, stained by sin, excellence in godliness, perfection in moral purity. Those things have not been available to us to observe anywhere. They've not been seen in any life. Except, of course, in one life, the life that came on display when the grace of God appeared in all its radiance in the man Christ Jesus. This is an aspect of the work of Jesus that I think we easily overlook. I think especially actually in gospel churches like ours where we want to emphasize the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross, his substitutionary work. But Jesus did indeed come to be an example to us. There's no question that the believer is meant to emulate the Lord Jesus in his lifestyle. The appearing of God's grace in this perfect shining frankly beautiful life of jesus it teaches us to renounce ungodliness by its sheer attractiveness as we read of the life of jesus in the gospels we cannot help but be drawn to him and we cannot help but desire to be like him we can't do that without his work of transformation within we can't do that without being born again But the spirit moves and the spirit prompts the believer to become more like jesus as we look at his gracious life and the spirit helps us to grow to be like him the kind of life that jesus models for us the kind of life that jesus has purified us to live is a life verse 12 marked by self-control it's a life that doesn't give in to every whim and passion a life that has the discipline to say no to things that worldly passions might call us to indulge in and of course, that's how Jesus lived among us. He had control over his speech and his behavior. He, he had control over the demands of his emotions and his physicality, so that even as he approached the cross, he was able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Christian life is a life that is marked as upright, says Paul. There's an integrity to it, a, a kind of transparency. There isn't a sort of a hidden side, a duplicity, an unpredictability of character that make, makes one wonder, you know, what secrets are hidden beneath the surface, just as Jesus behaved with consistency among all people. Speaking truth, acting without compromise in every circumstance. We learn from him to be upright. Upright so that teachers at school or university Will know that Christian students just haven't cheated on their work upright so that spouses will know that a believing husband or a believing wife is faithful upright so that in professional or business dealings others will have confidence that a believer can be trusted to carry through on their word and be fair and to be honest in their dealings the Christian life will simply verse 12 be godly Others will look on the believer's life and see something of the Lord Jesus Christ, something of the very character of God.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The Engine of Transformation. It's part of our series, Transformed by Truth, as we continue our study of the book of Titus. If you ever miss a broadcast in the series or you want to go back and listen again, You can always do that by coming to our website, it's EncounterTheTruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an mp3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app, it's new, and it's available on your favorite app store, so simply just head there and look for Encounter the Truth. That's a great way to listen to Jonathan's teaching on the go whenever it fits your schedule. Or again, if you want to listen online, our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan.
0: The appearing of the grace of God in Jesus, it teaches us to live in godliness. And finally, it teaches us to wait for our hope, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's generally true that the experience of waiting for something significant causes us to live a different kind of way in that waiting period. You are waiting for an important doctor's appointment or test results, and there is a soberness, isn't there, that comes, a a distraction perhaps from the other things of life. You're waiting for exam results or that call after the big job interview. Your mind is entirely focused on that news, and, and other things just kind of fade away. You're waiting for the day of your wedding, and life is full of guest lists, and wardrobe choices, and orders of service, and honeymoon plans. You're waiting for the birth of a child. And for nine months, everything seems to be about that coming day. As Christian believers, we are fundamentally a people who are waiting, waiting for the Lord Jesus' To return, you will notice that the basic framework of our passage this morning is actually a focus on two appearings. These are the bookends for everything else here. Verse eleven: God's grace has appeared in Jesus in His first coming. Verse thirteen: We wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. As believers, we understand ourselves to be living in an age that lies between two appearings of. Jesus Christ in the first appearing he taught us of his saving work and he promised that he would return to complete that work to gather his people to himself to judge evil. We we learned of that second coming in his first coming. And his first coming it gives us confidence that the next coming will indeed take place. It's helpful to remember that the Old Testament people of God waited a long time for the Messiah to come. There were promises in God's Word stretching right back to the early chapters of Genesis that a a Savior would would come to address the problem of sin and evil. But the wait, that wait was a very, very long one. Centuries and millennia went by. And as the wait stretched on, the people might have begun to wonder whether the Savior would ever arrive. During the years of slavery in Egypt, During the years of exile in Babylon, it must have seemed a long wait. It must have seemed a dim prospect that the Messiah would come. During the centuries of prophetic silence, 400 years at the end of the Old Testament, no new message from the Lord. It might have seemed as though perhaps the Lord has forgotten us, forgotten his promise. But then he came, and the promises were proved true And the fact that God kept his word of promise in the first coming of Jesus, in the first appearing, it tells us that we can trust his word for the second appearing of Jesus. We had some plans to have some work done at our house this year, and one contractor told us that he would come and do part of the work in the spring, and then come back and do part of the work in the summer, but but all the contractors seemed very, very busy this year. It was a little hard to actually to book anyone to do the work, and part of us wondered, would any of this actually materialize in the end? It was so hard to pin someone down. But, but to our relief, he did indeed show up with his crew, and he did the first part of the project. And while he was on site, we had a conversation about part two, and I was a little bit anxious about part two. We talked about the date for that work, and he said, you know, if I booked you in for such and such a date, rest assured I'm going to be there. And having seen him uh, keep his word once, I'm now pretty confident that he will do so. Again, I feel pretty good about it. Well, how much more so with the Lord? In a very real and a very substantial sense, his first coming taught us to wait for the second coming. But for the Christian now, waiting has a particular character to it. It's not like waiting in the doctor's office for a delayed appointment that's coming late. So, you know, we flick through the news on our our phone or we pick up one of those out-of-date, dog-eared magazines just to fill the time. Christian waiting is not about time It is an active thing. We wait in an active sense. In part, this all just ties in with the theme of godly living. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. The people of this world, they pursue worldly passions because the world is all there is to them. So, seeking fulfillment through self-indulgence and through ungodly behavior. That's a natural enough thing to do if this world is all there is. But as Christians, we understand that our truest joy and our deepest fulfillment is not actually tied to this present world. We are waiting for a world to come. And so waiting for us means saying no to worldly passions. In fact, knowing that we have this glorious future before us, that enables us to wait. To live distinctively. To put our hope in joys and pleasures that are yet to come. Paul reminds us in verse 14 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. His goal in coming, in living, and in dying here for us. It was not simply to kind of squeeze us into heaven It was to make for himself a new people, a people with zeal, with an unbridled enthusiasm and a deep commitment for a different kind of living, for godliness, for self-control, for truly good works. The gospel is the engine of the Christian life, but that new life, that transformed life, it matters so much to our Savior. I wonder as we close, does that transformation of life matter to you as it matters to the Savior? And does it matter to me? as it matters to him. Have we made that vital connection between gospel and life transformation? It's so possible, so easy for that connection just to be lost so that either actually we're all about good works but we don't really know the gospel that drives those good works and that's a fast track to a kind of moral slavery, to a fear and to a failure. Only the gospel can transform us and enable us to change but the other way to lose The connection is to grab hold of the gospel, you know, to thank the Lord for his salvation, but to somehow view the gospel as a free ticket to heaven and nothing more and then to slide back in to worldly living. But friends, our Savior's design is that we have both. We need both. We need to understand that vital connection and we need to ask for God's grace to live as the people that Jesus has saved us to be. And as we close, let me just say if you have a longing for a transformed life, if you long to be changed, if you long to be made new, here is where you start. This is the engine the grace of God in Jesus, the offer of salvation. That's the starting point. That is how to be made new. And that's where transformation will ultimately come from. And as we said earlier, that invitation, it's for you
1: if you would but come by faith. Well, as you've been listening to Jonathan here on Encounter the Truth, I hope you've come to that point of receiving the gift of salvation that God offers to you and that you've responded to his invitation to come to him to receive his grace, his forgiveness, and receive that eternal life that uh, only he offers. If you've got questions about that, we'd love to talk with you about how you can begin that relationship with Jesus. Give us a call. Our toll-free number Is 1 833 99 Truth. That's 1 833 998 7884. And if you ever miss a broadcast, you can always come to our website and listen online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener supported program. We stay on the station because of your generosity, but as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thanks for your giving by sending you a book called How Church Can Change Your Life. And Jonathan, why this book this month?
0: Well, here at Encounter the Truth, we have a really high view of the importance of the local church. We don't want our media ministry to be a substitute for church. We want to be encouraging you to be fully engaged in a Bible-teaching church in, in your area and we recognize that we've been going through a season uh, really around the world where many people have been unable to get to church because of the pandemic and we feel this book is a wonderful encouragement to see the importance of church for anyone who would follow Jesus and if if you're new to christian things exploring christian things and have never been part of a local church we think this book will be a real help to you to to consider Uh, making that a priority in your life. And for the believer who's perhaps a little bit disengaged from the local church, we think this will be just the spur, perhaps, that you need.
1: Well, we want to send you a copy of this book, How Church Can Change Your Life, as our way of saying thanks for your support. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. It might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH or get our website, encounterthetruth.org. Thanks for listening today, and I do hope you'll join us next time.